Hello, welcome back to the American History Podcast. So in today's episode, we are going to look at the court system we have here in America. So it's kind of a combination mix between, you know, a more political science government oriented type of podcast and kind of the history of the court system here in America. So, but when we talk about court cases in the United States, uh, they fall under two categories of law. There's criminal and civil law. So cases of criminal law are those where the government charges an individual with violating a statute or law that has been enacted to protect public health, safety, morals, or welfare. And in criminal cases, the government is always the plaintiff, the party that brings the charges, and alleges that a criminal violation has been committed by a named defendant. So most criminal cases arise in state and municipal courts and involve matters ranging from traffic offenses to robbery and murder. Although the great bulk of criminal law is still a state matter, a large and growing body of federal criminal law deals with matters ranging from tax evasion and mail fraud to acts of terrorism and the sale of narcotics. Defendants found guilty of criminal violations may be fined or sent to jail or prison. In cases of civil law, involve disputes among individuals, groups, corporations, and other private entities or between such litigants and the government in which no criminal violation is charged. Unlike in criminal cases, the losers in civil cases cannot be fined or incarcerated, although they may be required to pay monetary damages for their actions. The two most common types of civil cases involve contracts and torts. In a typical contract case, an individual or corporation charges that it has suffered because of another's violation of a specific agreement between the two. In deciding cases, courts apply statutes or laws and legal precedents prior decisions. In state and federal statutes, for example, often govern the conditions under which contracts are and are not legally binding. But precedents, uh, such precedents are applied under the doctrine of stare decisis, a Latin phrase meaning let the decision stand. So if a case involves the actions of the federal government or state government, a court may also be asked to examine whether the government's conduct was consistent with the Constitution. In a criminal case, for example, defendants might assert that their constitutional rights were violated when the police searched their property. Similarly, in a civil case involving federal or state restrictions on land development, plaintiffs might assert that government actions violated the Fifth Amendment's prohibition against taking private property without just compensation. Thus, both civil and criminal cases may raise questions of constitutional law. In the United States, systems of courts have been established both by the federal government and by the governments of the individual states. And both systems have several levels. More than 97% of all court cases in the United States are heard in state courts. Overwhelming majority of criminal cases, for example, involve violations of state laws prohibiting prohibiting such actions as murder, murder, robbery, fraud, theft, and assault. If such a case is brought to trial, it will be heard at a state trial court in front of a judge and sometimes a jury who will determine whether the defendant violated state law. If the defendant is convicted... They may appeal the conviction to a higher court, such as a state court of appeals, and from there to a court of last resort, usually called the state Supreme Court. The government is not entitled to appeal 
if the defendant is found not guilty in a criminal case. So the party filing an appeal is known as the appellant. They have to show that the trial court made some legal error in deciding the case. Appeals courts do not hear witnesses or examine additional evidence and will consider new facts only under unusual circumstances. So, um, in both criminal and civil matters, most cases are settled before trial through negotiated agreements between the two parties. And in criminal cases, the agreements are called plea bargains. Cases are heard in the federal courts if they involve federal laws, treaties with other countries, the U.S. Constitution. And these areas are the official jurisdiction of the federal courts. In addition, any case in which the U.S. government is a party is heard in the federal courts. But even if a matter belongs in federal court, how do we know which federal court should exercise jurisdiction over the case? So, for the most part, Congress has assigned jurisdictions on the basis of geography. So, the nation is currently, by statute, divided into 94 judicial districts. Each of the 94 U.S. District Courts, including one court for each of the three U.S. territories, exercises jurisdiction over federal cases arising within its district. The judicial districts are, in turn, organized into 11 regional circuits and the D.C. Circuit. Each circuit court exercises appellate jurisdiction over cases heard by the district courts within its region. Article 3 of the Constitution gives the Supreme Court original jurisdiction in a limited variety of classes, including 1. Cases between the United States and one of the 50 states. 2. Cases between two or more states. 3. Cases involving foreign ambassadors or other ministers. and 4. Cases brought by one state against citizens of another state or against a foreign country. Article 3 assigns original jurisdiction in all other federal cases to the lower courts that Congress was authorized to establish. Importantly, the Congress gives the Supreme Court appellate jurisdiction in all federal cases, and almost all cases heard by the Supreme Court today are under its appellate jurisdiction. Courts of original jurisdiction are the courts that are responsible for discovering the facts in a controversy and creating the record on which a judgment is based. In courts that have appellate jurisdiction, judges receive cases after the factual record is established by the trial court. Ordinarily, new facts cannot be presented before appellate courts. Geography, however, is not the only basis for federal court jurisdiction. Congress has also established several specialized courts that have nationwide original jurisdiction in certain types of cases. These include the U.S. Court of International Trade, created to deal with trade and customs issues, and the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, which handles damage suits against the United States. Congress has also established a court with nationwide appellate jurisdiction, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which hears appeals involving patent law and those arising from the decisions of the trade and claims courts. 
Other federal courts assigned specialized jurisdictions by Congress include the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, which exercises exclusive jurisdiction over cases involving veterans' claims, and the U.S. Court of Military Appeals, which deals with the questions of law arising from trials by court martial. With the exception of the Claims Court and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, these specialized courts were created by Congress on the basis of the powers the legislature exercises under Article I, rather than Article Three of the Constitution. Article Three is designed to protect judges from political pressure by granting them life tenure and prohibiting reduction of their salaries while they serve. The judges of Article I courts, by contrast, are appointed by the president for fixed terms of 15 years and are not protected by the Constitution from salary reduction. As a result, these legislative courts are generally viewed as less independent than the courts established under Article III. The three territorial courts for Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the Northern Mariana Islands were also established under the provisions in Article I, and their judges are appointed for 10-year terms. So, the appellate jurisdiction of the federal courts extends to cases originating in the state courts. In both civil and criminal cases, a decision of the highest state court can be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court by raising a federal issue. A defendant who appeals a lower court decision in federal court might assert, for example, that he or she was denied the right to counsel or was otherwise deprived of the due process of law guaranteed by the federal constitution or that important issues of federal law were at stake in the case. The U.S. Supreme Court is not obligated to accept such appeals and will do so only if it believes that the matter has considerable national significance. In addition, in criminal cases, defendants who have been convicted in a state court may request a writ of habeas corpus from a federal district court. Sometimes known as the Great Writ, habeas corpus is a court order to the authorities to show cause for a prisoner's incarceration. The court will then evaluate the sufficiency of the cause and may order the release of a prisoner deemed to be held in violation of their legal rights. Generally speaking, state defendants seeking a federal writ of habeas corpus must show that they have exhausted all available state remedies and must raise issues not previously raised in their state appeals. Federal courts of appeals and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, have appellate jurisdiction for federal district over habeas decisions. Although the federal courts hear only a small fraction of all the civil and criminal cases decided each year in the United States, their decisions are extremely important. It is in the federal courts that the Constitution and federal laws that govern all Americans are interpreted and their meaning and significance established. Moreover, it is in the federal courts that the powers and limitations of the increasingly powerful national government are tested. Finally, through their power to review the decisions of the state courts, it is ultimately the federal courts that dominate the American judicial system. So, most of the cases of the original federal jurisdiction are handled by the federal district courts. Although the Constitution gives the Supreme Court original jurisdiction in several types of cases, such as those affecting investors and those in which a state is one of the parties, most original jurisdiction goes to the lower courts, the trial courts. 
Congress has authorized the appointment of 678 federal district judges to staff the 94 federal district courts. At any given time, some of these positions may be vacant and awaiting the appointment of new judges. District judges are assigned to district courts according to the workload. The busiest of these courts may have as many as 28 judges. Only one judge is assigned to each case, except when statutes providing for three judge courts to deal with special issues. The routines and procedures of the federal district courts are essentially the same as those of the state trial courts, except that federal procedural requirements tend to be stricter. <clears throat> States, for example, do not have to provide a grand jury, a 12-member trial jury, or a unanimous jury verdict. Federal courts must follow all these procedures. Roughly 20% of all lower court cases, along with appeals from some federal agency decisions, are subsequently reviewed by federal appeals courts. As noted before, the country is divided geographically into 11 regional circuits in the D.C. Circuit, each of which has a U.S. Court of Appeals. A 13th appellate court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, has a subject matter rather than a geographical jurisdiction. Congress has authorized the appointment of 179 Court of Appeals judges, though, as in the case of the district courts, some spots may be vacant at any given point in time. Except for cases selected for review by the Supreme Court, decisions made by the appeals courts are final. So because of this finality, certain safeguards have been built into the system. Most important is the provision of more than one judge for every appeals case. Each court of appeals has from, 60, from 6 to 28 permanent judgeships, depending on the workload of the circuit. Although normally three judges hear appeal cases, in some instances a larger number of judges sit together and mock. Another safeguard is provided by the assignment of a Supreme Court justice as the circuit justice for each of the 12 circuits. The circuit justice deals with requests for special action by the Supreme Court. The most frequent and best-known action of circuit justices is that of reviewing requests for stays of execution when the full court is unable to do so, primarily during the summer when the court is in recess. So the Supreme Court is America's highest court. Article 3 of the Constitution vests the judicial power of the United States in the Supreme Court, and this court is supreme in effect as well as form. Supreme Court is the only federal court established by the Constitution. The lower federal courts are created by statute and can be restructured or presumably even abolished by the Congress. The Supreme Court is made up of the Chief Justice of the United States and eight Associate Justices. The Chief Justice provide, presides over the court's public sessions and conferences and is always the first to speak and vote when the Justices deliberate. Voting then proceeds in order of seniority. In the court's actual deliberations and decisions, the Chief Justice has no more authority than his colleagues. Each Justice casts one vote. In addition, if the Chief Justice has voted with the majority, she decides which of the Justices will write the formal opinion of the court. The character of the opinion can be an important means of influencing the evolution of the law beyond the mere affirmation or denial of the appeal on hand. To some extent, the influence of the Chief Justice is a function of their own leadership ability. Now, the Constitution does not specify the number of justices who should sit on the Supreme Court. Congress has the authority to change the court's size. 
In the early 19th century, there were six Supreme Court justices. Later, there were seven. Congress set the number at nine in 1869, and the court has remained that size ever since. Now, federal judges are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. They are generally selected from among the more prominent or politically active members of the legal profession. Many federal judges previously served as state court judges or state or local prosecutors. There are no formal qualifications for service as a federal judge. In general, presidents endeavor to appoint judges who possess legal experience and good character and whose partisan and ideological views are similar to their own. Once the president has formally nominated an individual, the nominee must be considered by the Senate Judiciary Committee and confirmed by a majority vote in the full Senate. And in recent years, a good deal of partisan conflict has surrounded judicial appointments. So while political factors play an important role in the selection of district and appellate court judges, they are decisive when it comes to Supreme Court appointments. Because the high court has so much influence over American law and politics, Virtually all presidents have made an effort to select justices who share their political philosophies. So, in recent decades, Supreme Court nominations have come to involve intense partisan struggle. Typically, after the president has named a nominee, interest groups opposed to the nomination mobilize opposition in the media, among the public, and in the Senate. So now we're going to look at the power of the Supreme Court. So the term judicial review refers to the power of the judiciary to examine and, if necessary, invalidate actions undertaken by the legislative and executive branches if it finds them unconstitutional. The term is sometimes also used to describe the scrutiny that appellate courts give to the actions of trial courts, but, strictly speaking, this is an improper use. A higher court's examination of a lower court's decision might be called appellate review, but it is not judicial review. So because the Constitution does not give the Supreme Court the power of judicial review over congressional enactments, the court's exercise of it seems like something of a usurpation. Judicial review was discussed at the Constitutional Convention. Some delegates expected the courts to exercise this power, while many others were departmentalists believing that each branch of the new government would interpret the Constitution as it applied to its own actions, with the judiciary mainly ensuring that individuals did not suffer injustices. Ambiguity over the framers' intentions was settled in 1803 in the case of Marbury v. Madison. The case arose after Thomas Jefferson replaced John Adams in the White House. Jefferson's Secretary of State, James Madison, refused to deliver an official commission to William Marbury, who had been appointed to a minor office by Adams and approved by the Senate just before Adams left the presidency. Marbury petitioned the Supreme Court to order Madison to deliver the commission. Jefferson and his followers did not believe that the court had the power to undertake such an action and might have resisted the order. Chief Justice John Marshall was determined to assert the power of the judiciary but knew he must avoid a direct confrontation with the president. So accordingly, Marshall turned down Marbury's petition, but gave as his reason the unconstitutionality of the legislation upon which Marbury had based his claim. Thus, Marshall asserted the power of judicial review, but did so in a way that would not provoke a battle with Jefferson. And the Supreme Court's decision in this case established the power of judicial review. 
So the power of the Supreme Court to review state legislation and other state action to determine its constitutionality is neither granted by the Constitution nor inherent in the federal system. But the logic of the supremacy clause of Article 6 of the Constitution, which declares the Constitution itself and laws made under its authority to be the supreme law of the land, is very strong. Furthermore, in the Judiciary Act of 1789, Congress conferred on the Supreme Court the power to reverse state constitutions and laws whenever they are clearly in conflict with the U.S. Constitution, federal laws, or treaties. This power gives the Supreme Court appellate jurisdiction over all the millions of cases that American courts handle each year. The Supremacy Clause of the Constitution not only established the federal constitution, statutes, and treaties as the supreme law of the land, but also provided that the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the constitution or laws of the state to the contrary notwithstanding. Under this authority, the Supreme Court has frequently overturned state constitutional provisions or statutes, state court decisions, and local ordinances it deems to contravene rights or privileges guaranteed under the federal constitution or federal statutes. The civil rights arena abounds with examples of state laws that the Supreme Court has overturned because the statutes violated guarantees of due process and equal protection contained in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And some statutes in other areas of law are equally subject to challenge. Many of the Supreme Court's recent decisions overturning state law have come in cases concerning election law. One realm in which the court constantly monitors state conduct is that of law enforcement. So the Supreme Court has developed a number of principles regulating police conduct to ensure that the police do not violate constitutional liberties. These principles, however, must often be updated to keep pace with changes in technology. Though Congress makes the law, it can hardly administer the thousands of programs it has enacted and must therefore delegate power to the president and to a huge bureaucracy to achieve its purposes. For example, if Congress wishes to improve air quality, it cannot simply anticipate all the conditions and circumstances that may arise with respect to the general goal. Inevitably, Congress must delegate to the executive substantial discretionary power to make judgments about the best ways to bring about improved air quality in the face of changing circumstances. Thus, over the years, almost any congressional program will result in thousands upon thousands of pages of administrative regulations developed by executive agencies nominally seeking to implement the will of the Congress. Delegation of power to the executive poses a number of problems for Congress and the federal courts. If Congress delegates broad authority to the president, it risks seeing its goals subordinated to and subverted by those of the executive branch. If Congress attempts to limit executive discretion by enacting precise rules and standards to govern the conduct of the president and the executive branch, it risks writing laws that do not conform to real-world conditions and that are too rigid to adapt to changing circumstances. Over the past two centuries, the issue of delegation of power has led to a number of court decisions regarding the scope of the delegation. Courts have also been called on to decide whether the regulations adopted by federal agencies are consistent with Congress's express or implied intent. So the federal courts are also called on to review the actions of the president. On many occasions, members of Congress as well as individuals and groups have challenged presidential orders and actions in the federal courts. In recent years, 
the federal bench has, more often than not, upheld assertions of presidential power in such realms as foreign policy, war and emergency powers, legislative power, and administrative authority. Much of the work of the court involves the application of statutes to the particular case at hand. Over the centuries, judges have also developed a body of rules and principles of interpretation that are not grounded in specific statutes. This body of judge-made law is called common law. For example, tort case, which determines whether one person is liable for causing harm to another, is based more upon cases and precedents than statute. The appellate courts, however, are in another realm. Their rulings can be considered laws because they govern the behavior only of the judiciary. The written opinion of an appellate court is about halfway between common law and statutory law. As in common law, the opinion is judge-made and draws heavily on the precedents of previous cases. But as in statutory law, it tries to articulate the rule of law controlling the case in question and future cases like it. It differs from a statute in that a statute addresses itself to the future conduct of its citizens. Whereas a written opinion addresses itself mainly to the future willingness or ability of courts to take cases and render favorable opinions. Decisions by appellate courts affect citizens by opening or closing access to the courts. So for a party to bring a case the party must have a standing. You know, they must show that they have a substantial stake in the outcome of the case. Traditional requirement of standing has been to show injury to oneself. That injury can be personal, economic, or even aesthetic, like a neighbor's building a high fence that blocks the view of the ocean. Right? As also, mootness, right? And mootness is a criterion used by courts to screen cases that no longer require Resolution. So, in theory, this requirement disqualifies cases that are brought too late, after the relevant facts have changed or the problem has been resolved by other means. So, it is subject to the discretion of the courts, which have begun to relax the rules of mootness, particularly in cases where a situation has been resolved is likely to come up again. So, most cases reach the Supreme Court through a writ of certiorari. Certiorari is an order to a lower court to deliver the records of a particular case to be reviewed for legal errors. The term certiorari is sometimes shortened to just cert, and cases deemed to merit certiorari are referred to as cert-worthy. An individual who loses in a lower federal court or state court and wants the Supreme Court to review the decision has 90 days to file a petition for a writ of certiorari with the clerk of the U.S. Supreme Court. Petitions for thousands of cases are filed with the court every year. And since 1972, most of the justices have participated in a certiorari pool in which the law clerks work together to evaluate the petitions. Each petition is reviewed by one clerk who writes a memo for all the justices participating in the pool, summarizing the facts and issues and making a recommendation. Clerks for the other justices add their comments to the memo. After the justices have reviewed the memos, any one of them may place any case on the discussed list, which is circulated by the Chief Justice. If a case is not placed on the discussed list, it is automatically denied certiorari. Cases placed on the discussed list are considered and voted on during the Justice's closed-door conference. So, for 
certiorari to be granted, four justices must be convinced that the case satisfies Rule 10 of the Rules of the Supreme Court of the United States. Rule 10 states that certiorari is not a matter of right, but it is to be granted only when there are special and compelling reasons. These include conflicting decisions by two or more circuit courts, conflicts between circuit courts and state courts of last resort, conflicting decisions by two or more state courts of last resort, decisions by circuit courts on matters of federal law that should be settled by the Supreme Court, and a circuit court decision on an important question that conflicts with Supreme Court decisions. It should be clear from this list that the court will usually take action under only the most compelling circumstances. When there are conflicts among the lower courts about what the law should be, when an important legal question has been raised in the lower courts but not definitively answered, or when a lower court deviates from the principles and precedents established by the high court. So, only about 1% of those seeking a Supreme Court review are actually granted certiorari. So, if any single person has greater influence than individual judges over the federal courts, it is the Solicitor General over the United States. So the Solicitor General is the third-ranking official in the Justice Department below the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General, but the top government lawyer in virtually all cases before the Supreme Court in which the government is a party. The Solicitor General has the greatest control over the flow of cases. His or her actions are not reviewed by any higher authority in the executive branch. More than half the Supreme Court's total workload consists of cases under the direct charge of the Solicitor General. The Solicitor General exercises especially strong influence by screening cases before any agency of the federal government can appeal them to the Supreme Court. The Solicitor General can enter a case even when the federal government is not a direct litigant by writing an amicus curiae or friend of the court brief. A friend of the court is not a direct party to a case, but has a vital interest in its outcome. Thus, when the government has such an interest, the Solicitor General can file an amicus brief or a federal court can invite such a brief because it wants an opinion in writing. Other interested parties may file briefs as well. So... When the Supreme Court's decision to accept a case is the beginning of what can be a lengthy and complex process. So after a petition is filed and cert granted, the court considers the reasoning on both sides as presented in briefs and oral argument. The justices discuss the case in conference and opinions are carefully drafted. First, the attorneys on both sides must prepare briefs, written documents in which their attorneys explain why the court should rule in favor of their client. Briefs are filled with referrals to precedents specifically chosen to show that other courts have frequently ruled in the same way the attorneys are requesting that the Supreme Court rule. The attorneys for both sides muster the most compelling precedents they can in support of their arguments. As the attorneys prepare their briefs, they often ask sympathetic interest groups for their help. These groups are asked to file amicus curiae briefs that support the claims of one or the other litigant. The next stage of a case is oral argument, in which attorneys for both sides appear before the court to present their positions and answer the justice's questions. Each attorney has only a half hour to present a case, and this time includes interruptions for questions. But it 
can, you know, for an attorney, the opportunity to argue a case before the Supreme Court is a singular honor and a mark of professional distinction. It can also be a harrowing experience as when justices interrupt a carefully prepared presentation. Nevertheless, oral argument can be very important to the outcome of a case. It allows justices to understand better the heart of the case and to raise questions that might not have been addressed in the opposing side's briefs. It is not uncommon for justices to go beyond the strictly legal issues and ask opposing counsel to discuss the implications of the case for the court and the nation at large. Following oral argument, the court discusses the case in its Wednesday or Friday conference, a strictly private meeting that no outsiders are permitted to attend. The Chief Justice presides over the conference and speaks first. The other justices follow in order of seniority. The justices discuss the case and eventually reach a decision on the basis of a majority vote. If the court is divided, a number of votes may be taken before a final decision is reached. As the case is discussed, justices may try to influence or change one another's opinions. At times, this may result in compromise decisions. After a decision has been reached, one of the members of the majority is assigned to write the opinion. This assignment is made by the Chief Justice or by the most senior justice in the majority of if the Chief Justice is on the losing side. The assignment of the opinion can make a significant difference to the interpretation of a decision. Every opinion of the Supreme Court sets a major precedent for future cases throughout the judicial system. Lawyers and judges in the lower courts will examine the opinion carefully to ascertain the Supreme Court's intent. Differences in wording and emphasis can have important implications for future litigation. Thus, in assigning an opinion, the justices must give serious thought to the impression the case will make on lawyers and on the public and to the probability that one justice's opinion will be more widely accepted than another's. Once the majority opinion is drafted, it is circulated to the other justices. Some members of the majority may agree with both the outcome and the rationale, but wish to emphasize or highlight a particular point. For that purpose, they draft a concurring opinion, called a regular concurrence. In other instances, one or more justices may agree with the majority decision, but disagree with the rationale presented in the majority opinion. These justices may draft special concurrences, explaining their own rationale for the decision and how it differs from the majority's rationale. So justices who disagree with the majority decision of the court may choose to publicize the character of their disagreement in the form of a dissenting opinion. The dissenting opinion is generally assigned by the senior justice among the dissenters. Dissents can be used to express irritation with an outcome or to signal to defeated political forces in the nation that their position is supported by at least some members of the court. Ironically, the most dependable way an individual justice can exercise a direct and clear influence on the court is to write a dissent. Because there is no need to please a majority, dissenting opinions can be more eloquent and less guarded than majority opinions. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was notorious for dissenting opinions. And dissent plays a special role in the work and impact of the court because it amounts to an appeal to lawyers all over the country to keep bringing similar cases. Therefore, an effective dissent influences the flow of cases through the court and the arguments that lawyers will use in later cases. Even more important, dissent points out that although the court speaks with a single opinion, it is the opinion only of the majority, and one day the majority might go the other way. 
So the Supreme Court explains its decisions in terms of law and precedent, but is the court itself, it is the court itself that decides what the laws actually mean and what important, importance the precedent will actually have. So throughout its history, the court has shaped and reshaped the law. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, for example, the Supreme Court held that the Constitution, law, and precedent permitted racial segregation in the United States. Beginning in the 1950s, however, the court found the Constitution prohibited segregation on the basis of race and indicated that the use of racial categories in legislation was always suspect. Now, the Supreme Court justices are acutely aware of the court's place in history, and they are about protecting the court's power and reputation. This desire to protect the institutional integrity of the court can sometimes influence judicial thinking. Judicial philosophy also plays a role in the decisions of all judges, including those on the Supreme Court. One element of judicial philosophy is the issue of activism versus restraint. Over the years, some justices have believed that courts should interpret the Constitution according to the stated intentions of its framers and defer to the views of Congress when interpreting federal statutes. So, some, but not all, advocates of judicial restraint are also called strict constructionists because they look strictly to the words of the Constitution in interpreting its meaning. The alternative to restraint is judicial activism. Activist judges, such as Chief Justice Earl Warren, believe that the court should go beyond the words of the Constitution or a statute to consider the broader societal implications of its decisions. Activist judges sometimes strike out in new directions, promulgating new interpretations or inventing new legal and constitutional concepts when they believe these to be socially desirable. Activism and restraint can overlap but with but are, are not always the same as liberalism and conservatism. So, for example, conservative politicians often castigate liberal activist judges and call for the appointment of conservative jurists who will refrain from reinterpreting the law. So, for example, the Rehnquist Court, dominated by conservatives, was among the most activist courts in American history, particularly in areas such as federalism and election law. The Roberts Court is continuing along the same route. For example, in the 2014 case of McCutcheon versus Federal Election Commission, the court struck down one of the major remaining elements of Congress's efforts to regulate campaign finance. The court's five more conservative justices said that limits on how much individuals could contribute in any given election was a restraint on free speech. This decision could be described as activist because it broadens the interpretation of speech and overturns congressional legislation that has significant public support. Now, the philosophy of activism versus restraint is sometimes a smokescreen for political ideology, and indeed the liberal or conservative attitudes or partisan leanings of justices play an important role in their decisions. In the past, liberal judges have often been activists, willing to use the law to achieve social and political change, whereas conservatives have been associated with judicial restraint. Interestingly, however, in recent years, some conservative justices who have long called for restraint have actually become activists in seeking to undo some of the work of liberal jurists. Judicial philosophy, ideology, and institutional interests 
all influence the thinking of justices. In the end, however, the Supreme Court is a court of law and must pay heed to statutes and legal precedent. A decision that cannot be justified by law and precedent cannot be issued. To ignore the law would be to determine the rule or undermine the rule of law and to destroy the constitutional structure in which the Supreme Court occupies such a prominent place. Now, there are some limits on the court. So, first, unlike other government institutions, courts can't exercise power on their own initiative. Second, courts were traditionally limited in the character of relief they could provide. Third, courts lacked enforcement powers of their own and were compelled to rely on executive or state agencies to ensure compliance with their decisions. Fourth, Federal judges are, of course, appointed by the president with the consent of the Senate. So, as a result of the limitations on judicial power, through much of their history, the chief function of the federal courts was to provide judicial support for executive agencies and to legitimize acts of Congress by declaring them to be consistent with constitutional principles. Only on rare occasions had the federal courts dared to challenge Congress or the executive branch. So that's all for the podcast today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And we're going to have some more coming around on various policies. Like, uh, let's see, we're going to have some economic policy, welfare, social policy, and foreign policy. I hope you guys are going to learn something new from all this stuff. Y'all take care, and I will see y'all next time, all right? Bye.